0: Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 through 20. Jesus says, Don't think that I, have, that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. I don't know if you in your work or at home have a to-do list, but I like Well, I would say I I have a love-hate relationship with my to-do list. I love that it tells me what to do, but I also hate that it tells me what to do. I love that it reminds me, but I I also hate the constant reminder of what's still left on the list. And the Pharisees were kind of like that. They were people that put a list together. They had 613 laws. They got all these laws and they loved it all of the laws that they could get they would then add some to it and add more and deeper understanding and expand the nuances of the law so that they could have the list that they believed was from god me on the other hand sometimes i write things down that i'm either doing or will do in like five minutes just so i can cross it off i cross it off and i'll even write it on like on a small post-it note and then i'll enjoy taking it and just throwing it away There's satisfaction in finishing a list. The Pharisees never got that satisfaction. They never got the satisfaction of knowing I had a list, I completed the list, and I finished all of it. For the Pharisees, their list was unending. There was no finishing it, there was no completion. It was always there, guiding their lives, controlling their lives, and the list ruled them. And they loved the list they loved the rules that governed their lives let's read verse 17 again jesus said don't think that i came to abolish the law or the prophets i did not come to abolish but to fulfill when moses went up on the mountain to receive the ten commandments of god he goes up the people stayed down below and they made a golden calf, and they worshiped it. Moses was still on the mountain as they were doing this, and before Moses even got down the mountain, they were already violating the law that God was literally giving Moses, and they were already in violation of it. The law taught what sin was. The law showed sin, It taught both obedience and it taught disobedience. The law became the teacher that led to death. The law was like an x ray looking inside and seeing that sin had corrupted the flesh. And when sin had corrupted the flesh, it sprang to life, and through sin, we died. The law itself didn't produce the death. The sin, living in our sinful nature, produced death. The law then required a penalty to be paid. The law required punishment for sin. The law demanded sacrifice. And so the people would offer sacrifices of blood and of death As the law continued to be broken, the people continued to offer sacrifice. More sin, more sacrifice, and on and on. These repeated offenses, these repeated violations of God's law, these repeated sins pointed forward to the need for a permanent sacrifice. The necessity of repeating these sacrifices showed that there was a need for a permanent sacrifice. The direction of the law pointed to Jesus. The law was like a sign. It stood there in front of the people and said, you'll never do it all. You'll never do it completely. The law of Christ did what the law of sin and death could never do. The law of sin and death did just as it said. It produced death through sin. But the law of Christ came as forgiveness of those sins. Jesus died on the cross once and for all as a permanent sacrifice over the law. And today we don't obey every law that's found in the Old Testament. Jesus came and fulfilled those laws The perfection that led to righteousness in the law was impossible. The law needing perfection would never come about. Sinful people have no capability for perfection. So the law said there will come a time, there will come a Messiah, there will come a Savior. And the law pointed ahead to the day that Jesus would arrive. This week, I read a story about a Jewish man named Bob. And it sounds like a totally fake name, but it's really his name. His name was Bob. And when he was young, he grew up as an orthodox Jew, doing everything the law had commanded. His orthodoxy, his beliefs, were better than his parents. His orthopraxy, the things that he did according to the law, exceeded his whole family. He would spend days and days and days, four or more days a week at the synagogue, learning from the rabbis how he might be a better Jew. Well, as Bob grew, he went to college and he continued his rabbinical understanding. And so his new synagogue, he had new rabbis and he had Gentile friends, non-Jewish friends that he would take with him to the synagogue. Well, one night after Bob and his friend had gone to the synagogue, Bob got back to his dorm room and his friend went off to his dorm room when Bob realized he had a problem. It was the Sabbath, and on the Sabbath, Orthodox Jews don't turn lights off because that's considered work and they can't work on the Sabbath. So the act of turning off a light would have violated God's commands according to the Orthodox Jews. So Bob laid in bed for hours, staring at the light that he couldn't turn off. Having gotten so frustrated that the light was keeping him from sleep, he got up, walked over to the wall, and flipped off the switch. Having lived his whole life in obedience to laws exactly like this, he turned it off. And he questioned himself. If I can't keep the law, then what religion am I following? If I can't keep a simple law like turning off a light switch, then what am I going to do? You see, Bob, like many Orthodox Jews, had found loopholes in the law where they could contract out labor to Gentiles. So Bob would have his friend, turn off the light every night before he left on the Sabbath. Bob would have his friends do things that he couldn't do because they weren't observant of all of the Jewish laws. But when push came to shove, Bob turned off his own light and he laid in bed questioning everything he ever knew. He took off his, his kippah, his yarmulke, and put it down and he ate a cheeseburger the Jews don't eat meat with milk. And so a cheeseburger eaten with meat and milk was also a violation. And Bob started wondering then, how is one to be righteous? How is one to appease and fulfill what God has asked us to do without perfection in the law? How might one be righteous? And Bob remembered, The Christian teaching that Jesus said he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And that questioning led Bob to Jesus. Bob is now part of Jews for Jesus. He evangelizes and tells Jewish people the law and the prophets are a signpost. The sign says, The Messiah is coming. The sign says, here's what to look for. The sign says, Jesus has arrived. And Bob started to realize that as he gave up trying to fulfill the law himself and be righteous because of the law. A couple years ago, we were in North Carolina for a wedding and we drove down from North Carolina to Florida and something about kind of like maybe from, from Texas East, they have this thing called Bucky's. And if you've ever been to a Bucky's, you know that Bucky's is not just a gas station, it's not just a convenience store, but it, it is a gas station, it is a convenience store, but it's more than that, it's, it's a way of life. It is the destination for people they will go out of their way to go to bucky's and the signs as we were driving south we started to see these signs that said next bucky's 250 miles <laughs> 250 miles not is the next gas station but the next bucky's as with most signs The billboards on the side of the road pointed and said, Bucky's is coming. Not the sign, nobody went and stood at the sign and said, I'm I'm here, I'm at the destination, but they said, the destination is coming. Your destination is 250 miles ahead. Signs like that one pointed to what is to come. The Old Testament law and the prophets pointed that Jesus would come, that the Messiah, that the Savior would come. The law was the direction to where they would be looking. Jesus was the destination. The law and the prophets pointed that the destination was coming. So the direction of the law pointed to Jesus. The duty of the law points to our need for Jesus. The direction of the law pointed to Jesus, to the Messiah that was to come. But the duty of the law, what the law is to do, is to point to our need for Jesus. Verse 18. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks the least of these and commands others and teaches them to do the same, will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. The Pharisees were the religious leaders of Israel. They were men trying to follow rules. They led religiously the nation and told other people, here is how we live according to God's standards. They took God's law and, as I said, expanded it to 613 laws. The rabbis throughout history have continued adding and changing and adapting and giving nuanced instruction to all of these laws. The rules governed not just their religious activities, but every aspect of their lives. They insisted on trying to obey every letter, every stroke of a letter, Every last thing that was written was for them to obey explicitly as an outward action. They made themselves slaves to a law that they could never fulfill. The law and the prophets could never be fulfilled through external works and through external obedience. The law pointed to their need for a savior, that they would never through the law be able to be obedient, to be able to be righteous. Let me give you another example of rabbis in modern day. As I said, switching off a light is considered work and that's a violation of the Sabbath. Well, rabbis disagree with one another and they tend to agree with whatever is the most difficult thing to adhere to. That is the most religious, they say, if it's really difficult to obey. So turning off a light is work. One rabbi said that it's not work, but instead turning on a light, an incandescent bulb with a little metal filament inside, heats up the metal filament and is therefore creating heat and heat can create fire and fire can be used for cooking, therefore, lights are off limits. Because the filament inside could create fire, which could create the ability to cook, so no turning on lights. A different rabbi disagreed with him and said, it's not about a fire. The other rabbi said, Heating the metal filament inside the incandescent bulb creates heat, which creates the ability to cook. And he said, so therefore, we don't allow lights. Apparently, this was like a big nuanced difference. And with the invention of LED bulbs, there's no longer a metal filament. And so there's no longer the same heat. There's no longer the same ability to create fire. And so you would think that, okay, well maybe that's okay now, but it just rekindled the argument. And so now they argue about whether LED bulbs are okay, not for cooking, not for fire, but because there's an ancient law that says you cannot add grain to an already running water mill. So a water mill which crushes the grain into the flour you can't add new grain on the Sabbath because it makes noise. And somehow they connect that watermill making noise to LED bulbs and to the best of my ability, I could not understand it. <laughs> but some connection there in the law about cooking and fire and lights was relevant to a water making noise. The Pharisees lived this way this is what they did. They were as outwardly righteous as one could possibly be. With their outward righteousness, they sought to please God. They sought through their outward actions and their outward obedience that God would look at them and say, you are righteous because you've done all of these things. The law was never going to produce righteousness of God. The duty of the law was to point to a savior, to point to the need for a savior. The duty of the law was to tell the outwardly righteous to look to Jesus for his righteousness. The righteousness Does not come from man's outward actions in obedience to the law. Here's the point of the Pharisees the righteousness was only external. Jesus tells them, and everybody who might believe in their works being enough, it doesn't cut it. In the rest of chapter five here, Jesus tells them and explains to them how the external obedience does not cut it. The external obedience is just external works. He says, you know not to murder. That's the external obedience. But then Jesus says, but really, you shouldn't be angry at each other. Jesus tells them, you know not to commit adultery, the external outward obedience. He says, but you shouldn't look lustfully at someone. Jesus tells them, you know if you get divorced, you have to write it down and give a notice. And he tells them, but you shouldn't get divorced for almost every situation. Jesus tells them, you know not to swear falsely, to take an oath falsely. That's the outward obedience. But Jesus says, but really you should just be telling the truth. He tells them, not to, to, well, to take the, the idea of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, the outward obedience to revenge. And he says, but really, you should just be forgiving and loving. Jesus says, you know that you're supposed to love your fellow Jews and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemy and pray for them. Jesus is taking all of their outward obedience and saying, it's not enough. It has to be in the heart. The outward obedience and some of this is fine. Yeah, you shouldn't murder, you shouldn't commit adultery, you shouldn't take revenge on someone. But if that's the end of it, you're not righteous. Righteousness does not come from outward actions. In chapter 6, Jesus kind of twists it a little bit, and he says, to be righteous. He tells them to be righteous, an outward action. But then he says, but not so that everyone will see your righteousness. The outward obedience isn't for everyone else to see. He tells them to give to the poor, to pray, to fast. But he says don't do these things with an outward obedience alone so that everybody sees it and everybody praises you and everybody loves you because you are so upstanding. Because your outward works and the external obedience to the law, everybody loves you. You are a Pharisee among Pharisees. You are the standard. Jesus is trying to teach them without a heart of obedience to God without a heart of obedience to God. The external works of obedience and righteousness, they're not righteousness, they're self-righteousness. If our heart is not right, the things that we do for God are not for God, they're for us. If our heart is wrong and our heart does not give evidence for the outward actions, We're pleasing ourselves. We're self-righteous. And Jesus is saying, none of that is righteousness. The obedience to the law without obedience in the heart is not righteousness. The duty of the law was never to provide righteousness. The duty of the law was to point to one who could bring righteousness. Paul talks about this in Galatians 2. He says, by the works of the law, no human being will be justified. By the works of the law, no human being will be justified. To be justified means to stand rightly before God. Nobody, through the works of the law, will stand right before God. Paul goes on, if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. If good works could make us righteous, then why did Jesus need to die? If I could do it on my own through adherence to the law, through enough good works, then Jesus' death was a waste. If righteousness could come through the law. If righteousness could come through good works. The duty of the law was not to provide righteousness, but to show I can't do it. Paul continues. Now it is clear that no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. Our righteousness is not found in the law. It's not found in works. It's not external. The righteous live by faith in Jesus who redeemed us from the law. We were slaves. We were under a guardian, under a teacher. The law held us in captivity, and Jesus came and paid the price that we wouldn't have to suffer and die under the law that we cannot fulfill. Only through the righteousness of Jesus is the law fulfilled. And until we give up our own righteousness, we can't accept the righteousness that Jesus offers. There's only room for one amount of righteousness. There's only room for one to sit on the throne. Either we put ourselves on the thrones and we do it all ourselves, or we admit, I can't do it, and I need someone else to pay the price. I need someone else to provide righteousness because I can't do it. The duty of the law was to say, a Savior is coming and you need Him. The law, like a sign, pointed to the Savior. It pointed to our need for Jesus. As we were continuing to drive from North Carolina down to Florida, the first sign was 250 miles, and it seemed like there were two dozen signs in between there. It was like, Next Bucky is 187 miles, 171 miles, 140 miles, 116 miles. It's like they could not get enough of these signs that were telling us your destination is coming. And then came the exit. We could see Bucky's on the side of the road. It's it's off the road. It's monstrous. They have a 100 gas pumps. It's literally the length of a football field just in gas pumps. The convenience store, I mean, hardly a convenience store, is like 50,000 square feet. That's the size of our now dearly departed pack and save. 50,000 square feet is not convenient. They make and sell brisket and fudge, and I'm telling you, Bucky's is a way of life for people. They love Bucky's. So we drove and we finally got to see the exit. Hundreds of signs all over the place, all pointing, depending on where you're coming from, that your destination is coming. And then there was one exit. To get to Bucky's, you had to take the one exit. The law and the prophets said your destination is 250 miles away. He so said, Your destination is 208 miles away, 171 miles away, 140, 90, 50, 12. Your destination is at the next exit. And then Jesus arrived. All of the signs of the law and the prophets had been pointing to Jesus. And then he arrived. The problem is that there's only one exit. All of the signs of the Old Testament point to the destination, but to get there, there's only one exit. Well, regrettably, we didn't need gas, and so we just drove past Bucky's. I know. It feels like a tragedy. <laughs> we mourn the missing of Bucky's. We'd never been there. It just looked like a big gas station. And then I find out from Mick, like, this is a big deal. Bucky's is a big deal. And I'm like, we missed the exit for it. The signs all pointed ahead. For us, God gave us. A list. He gave us commands. He gave us things that we ought not to do, and we've gone ahead and done them. Almost everything that the law commands, we violated. And then by ignoring and rejecting and denying God's law, sin sprang to life. Because of our disobedience to what God has given us to do, sin comes to life in us, and sin, when alive, brings death. Sin requires punishment. Sin requires sacrifice. And someone must bear that punishment. The law of death brings death. The law of Christ brings life. The law promised that a Savior would come. And Jesus came. Jesus lived the perfect righteous life. He was righteousness. And on the cross, Jesus died. His righteousness traded for our unrighteousness. His righteousness through his death on the cross gives us his righteousness. He paid the debt that we could never pay. He paid the punishment that we deserved. But we have to take the exit. For us to get to the destination, we have to take the exit. We have to accept that Jesus paid for our death on the cross, that he took our punishment. He died so that we could live. Seeing the signs isn't enough. Knowing where the destination is, is not enough. Going near the destination is not enough. Being in church is not enough. For us to be saved, for us to have the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, given to us on his behalf, we have to take the exit. The exit is this, Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There is no other way. In John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. There is one name given among man by which we must be saved. The Bible doesn't allow for you to just take another exit. Just go past it and see if you find another exit. All of the other exits lead to hell. There's only one way. The direction of the law points ahead to Jesus. The law's duty, what it was designed to do, was say the Messiah is coming and you need the Messiah. When we believe that, when we know that our righteousness, our outward works are never going to cut it, they're never going to be enough, then we take delight in the law. The law is no longer our guardian, it's no longer like a slave master, but we've been freed from the law, freed from the death that the law brings. The delight of the law. Verse 20. For I tell you, Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. Later, Jesus was asked a question by the Pharisees. They said, Teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? They were not asking a genuine question, desiring to learn from the great rabbi, the great teacher Jesus. They were trying to trick him. If Jesus gave them a law then they would be able to be upset with him because he didn't pick the right one and they weighed them in heavy and light laws. So as long as he picked one they didn't rank at the top, then they could be mad at him. And so they asked him, which is the greatest commandment? And he said to them, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. This shouldn't have been new for them because it echoes exactly what God had already told them. In Deuteronomy, it says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These words that I'm giving to you today are to be in your heart. They didn't like this part of it, they wanted rules, they loved the rules. The rules were in their heart. And following God does not mean following rules. And I know a lot of people were raised in a church or raised in a family that equated following God with following rules. I can't tell you how many times I've heard someone say Christians are people that have rules and they're supposed to follow these rules. And you've probably heard that too. Following God does not mean following rules. The love of God is to be in our hearts. God says to them, These words I am giving you today are to be in your heart. See, if you follow all of the rules and you have all of the outward righteousness, all of the external obedience, you've still failed. The seemingly spotless Pharisees that Jesus is talking about are still too dirty to get into heaven. Their perfect outer garments betrayed a filthy heart. They knew the Torah, but didn't know God. They knew the right things, but not the righteous one. They were morally pure, outwardly pure in morality, but spiritually depraved. They focused on obedience and failed in love. They loved the law, but not the lawgiver. They loved the rules, but not the ruler. The love was missing. The love of God was missing. The rules had replaced love. The law is fulfilled when we love God and when we love others. Now this is not an exhaustive list, it's on the back of your insert, but to love God, these are just some things, not everything by any stretch of the imagination, but to love God is to know and love God's word. Psalm 119 is 176 verses of a man who loves God's word. The psalmist throughout Psalm 119 uses synonym after synonym after synonym. synonym. Thank you. Synonym, not cinnamon. He uses all of these synonyms to describe God's word. He says... God's word is law and sayings and commands, judgments, statutes, precepts, testimony, ways, paths, decrees, instruction. The psalmist loves God's word. My favorite verse in Psalm 119 is verse 34. It says, help me understand your instruction and I will obey it and follow it with all of my heart. That's a prayer of mine. Like, God, help me to understand what all of this means. Help me to understand what you want. Because I want to obey, I just don't understand. Help me to understand so that I might obey. And then we read the Bible as if it were written directly to us. Because it was. God's very words delivered through the Holy Spirit that we might have life through Christ. To love God is to love what God loves, which is people. God showed remarkable love to us, to people, by sending Christ. Romans 5, 8 says, For that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's how God proved his love for us. There was evidence that God loves us and loves people because he sent Christ on our behalf. To love God is to let your light shine before others. This one is familiar, but our love for God should be evident to those around us. Matthew 5:16. let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. To love God is to love God with all of your heart. The actions will follow a heart that loves God. But the love of God is what starts, and then actions come as a result. It's impossible to love God and not serve Him. And it's impossible to serve God and not love Him. If we don't love God, our actions are for ourselves. And if we love God, it's impossible that we don't have those outward actions. Matthew 22 says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. To love God is to honor the name of God. The Lord is holy and to be praised. Our songs sing of the holiness, the everlasting majesty of God, and we honor him. Psalm 86, All the nations you have made will come and bow down before you, Lord, and and will honor your holy name. To love God is to live with integrity. Integrity is living in an honest way even when nobody sees. God knows everything. Nothing is hidden from him. The way we act when nobody else sees shows what we believe of God. Psalm 51 says, Surely you desire integrity in the inner self and teach me wisdom deep within. To love God is to humble your heart before God. Humility is the beginning of wisdom and Psalm 51 says, the sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart. To love God is to trust God and not yourself. This might be one of the most difficult ones for us to trust God and not ourself. Richard Baxter says, To distrust God is heinous sin and folly, but to distrust ourselves is highly reasonable. Our distrust should be in ourself. As we gain understanding about God, it should further our ability to love and to trust him. Psalm 33, 4, For the word of the Lord is right, and all of his work is trustworthy. To love God is to finish well. It's easy to start strong. It's easy to be excited about something new. It's hard to carry that on. Psalm 119, 112. I am resolved to obey your statutes to the very end. We are to love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. And the second commandment Jesus says is like it, that we are to love one another's. To love others is to love how God loves, sacrificially. The love that God showed to us cost him something. It cost him his son. 1 John 4.10 says, Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. God loves us other people besides us we ought to like god love others and it's probably going to cost us something to love others is to benefit them by our actions the early church lived this principle more than we can understand in acts 2 it says now all of the believers were together and held all things in common." They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Their love of others was demonstrated by their actions. There was evidence in their actions that they loved one another. To love others is to speak words of love and encouragement. Living a Christian life is difficult. Sin lurks for us. Others mock and ridicule. People leave and we're left alone. Hebrews 3.13 says, but encourage each other daily while it is still called today so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. We should take that literally and try to encourage one another. A text, a phone call, a letter, an encouraging word from another believer. Tell someone that you care about them and that you love them. To love others is to love how you want to be loved. This means to treat others the way that you want to be treated. Matthew 7, therefore, whatever you want others to do to you, do also the same for them. For this is the law and the prophets. The family of God should be the safest place. The church, the people, not the building, should be a shelter for any areas of life when we're struggling. And to love others, there's no better way to love someone who doesn't know Jesus than to tell them of their need for Jesus. If you wanna love the world, we must start with telling them that Jesus loved them first. The gospel, the good news of what Christ has done for us is not only to be spoken, but it's also to be lived. Our words matching our actions Richard Baxter again said, men would sooner believe that the gospel is from heaven if they saw more such effects of it upon the hearts and lives of those who profess it. People are more likely to believe the gospel if they see it in our lives. He says the world is better able to read the nature of religion in man's life than in the Bible. What unbelievers see in us is what they assume the Bible says. They assume that we as Christians are following God. And they should assume rightly and see evidence of our lives matching what the Bible says. We recite the Great Commission at the end of every service that tells us to go, therefore, and make disciples. That's done through word, and that's done through deed. Now, the direction of the law that Jesus came and fulfilled pointed to... A need for a Savior. The law showed that righteousness will never come through outward works, outward morality, outward actions. The duty of the law was to say, This isn't an enigma, this isn't something that we can't understand. The duty of the law was to say, You need Jesus, you need a Savior. I need a savior because I can't do the righteousness of the works of the law on my own. And when we believe that, upon the law and the prophets hang these two things, that we are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And the second like it, that we are to love others, to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. That is where the law and the prophet hangs. Like a door that swings on hinges, the law and the prophets swing on our love for God and our love for others. Let's pray. Lord, we believe that our righteousness is like filthy rags to you. Lord, that we have no righteousness that is worth offering to you. Lord, our offering to you is a humbled and contrite heart, a broken spirit. Lord, we ask that we would seek your righteousness, that our outward works would be out of a heart that loves you, not out of a desire to be self-righteous, not out of a desire to be seen, but that our heart would pour forth love for you and love for others. Lord, we ask that as we continue to study your word, Lord, that these words would resonate with us, that if we don't exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, an impossible standard, that we'll never earn the kingdom of heaven. There's no works, there's no righteousness, we can never earn your favor. Lord, we know that you gave it to us through Christ alone,